Well, Happy New Year. I can think of no better place to be on the first Sunday of 2024 than gathered with you, gathered with the people of God. Uh, the first thing that I would like for us to consider from this pulpit in 2024 is this question. Is Jesus most precious to you? Is Jesus most precious to you? I'm helped by one of my friends, Pastor Jordan Thomas in Memphis, Tennessee, who has said this. He says, every human heart has a tether. It's inextricably latched to your primary love. And that love governs your life. It's not the other way around. You do not control the object of your greatest love. It controls you. There's no escape from being led by your chief love. The object of your love shapes the orbit of your life. And so is Jesus most precious to you. As we consider that question for ourselves individually, the Bible will not allow us to stay at an individual consideration. Uh, the Bible compels us, it requires us to not just ask that individually, but to also ask that corporately. Is Jesus most precious to this church? Is he most precious to all of us? It forces us to see that the treasuring of Jesus, the prizing of Jesus, the being willing to give everything up for the sake of Jesus, that's intended to be done together. And so as the calendar is turned, I am jealous. I have a holy jealousy that this would mark us in 2024. Because I believe it's the will of God for his church to behold Jesus together. And the longer that I pastor, the more wary I become that we can do a lot of things for Jesus without really looking to Jesus. We can do a lot of things for him without really ever looking to him. And oh, that every member of our church would just say, my aim this year, and, and whatever the resolutions are that you have, praise be to God for those. The best way to give your life in 2024 is to see to it that Jesus is most precious to you. And you can't see to that on your own. And that's just God's kindness to you. That he would give you his people that all of our members would say, no, 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 not only is that my goal, but I want to joyfully labor to ensure that every other member is doing the same. And so I could ask, do you think, do we think that Jesus is the most dazzling one of all? And I think the answer would be, yeah, of course he is. Then the follow-up question is, then are we most dazzled by him? 
And so perhaps you're here and you're not a Christian or you're unsure if you're a Christian. I am so thankful that you are here. And in fact, I would just invite you to continue as you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus or even what it means to belong to a church that's seeking to take seriously the call to treasuring, to prizing, to loving Jesus most. We would love for you to walk that out with us. And it would be our joy to walk with you. And so if you have questions, any member of our church would love to have a conversation with you about what, what this means. To say no to everything this world offers and to say yes to Jesus. But I am thankful that you're here. I pray that God would use even the sermon this morning to just take your breath away and to give it back to you but for a moment to take it away where you would just be in awe of the fact that it is possible to know such a treasure that's found in God himself. And that if you will come to him by faith, what you'll realize is that you not only gain the greatest treasure, but God looks at you as his treasure. No matter how unwanted you feel, no matter how messed up your past is, there is a grace that is found in this God that I pray would just arrest your soul this morning. And so I'd like to pray for our time before we open 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Our holy God, you know where every heart in this room is this morning. And we pray that through your word you would do business with each heart that through your word you would give us a vision of your glory so that those who are bruised may find their hearts healed and would start leaping for joy at the outset of this year. And we just want to confess anew and again, you are more wonderful than anything else. And so would you help us to find satisfaction and joy in you to the glory of your name? For that to happen, I pray that the sermon that is heard would be far more effective than the one that is preached. Do it for your glory and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you considered the power of the things you look at on a regular basis? Have you thought about how who you are and what you love is shaped by what you look at. And so maybe a good question to just consider at the outset of this year is what gets the lion's share of your gaze day in and day out? Is it your bank account? Is it your political convictions? Is it your social justice issue? Is it the bathroom scale? Is it your grades? Is it your child's next accolade? Is it your career ladder, your relationship, the latest TV series, your smartphone, your secret lust? Is it your God? It's the nature of this life that we have to fight to intentionally make room in our line of sight what we cannot see. We become 
like that which we behold. Do you believe that? As I was thinking about this this week, I just thought, I can think of so many times how I have given in to my sin, not because I woke up and sin was altogether appealing, but because I kept looking at it. And once it grabbed my gaze, it began to shape my heart. What is it that's shaping your heart at the outset of this year? I mean, who you are today is the reflection of what you have loved most over the last several days and weeks and months and years. In fact, this isn't just my opinion, but it's actually what the Word of God makes clear. And so if you have your Bibles, I would invite you to open them to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's helpful as we preach through sermons here that you have the Bible open. It's actually helpful everywhere when you hear a sermon to have the Bible open and to see, is this his opinion or is this grounded in God's word? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's in the New Testament. Feel free to use the table of contents at the beginning. It will help you get there quickly. And so as we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to unpack loosely some of the context, but I really just want to focus on 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. 3 would be the large chapter number, 18, the smaller verse number. It's helpful for us to know as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 18, that Paul is referencing something that has happened in the book of Exodus. And if you were here with us for any part of last year, you probably crossed hairs or visited or walked with us through our series through the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 32. Israel has come out of Egypt. God's people have, have come out of Egypt in a miraculous fashion. And they've come to, to Mount Sinai. And while at Mount Sinai, the people are called to stay at the base of the mountain and to wait as Moses, who was their mediator, the go-between, the stand-between between God and his people. M Moses was called to go up and to meet with God. And he would come back and he would then speak to the people. If you think even about what we're doing today, God is using those that he raises up to herald and to speak his words to his people. We get to Exodus chapter 32. As Moses is up there, he's been up there for a while. This is what we read in verses 1 through 5. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in, the ears, uh, in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And so Moses' ministry really has been centered on pointing God's people to remember God. To encourage God's people, keep looking unto God. 
Because when you look unto God, the things of this world do, they begin to grow strangely dim in the light of who he is. But in the absence of such reminders as Moses is up on the mountain and the absence of, the, of such leadership, what we find is when left to ourselves, our hearts are inclined to worship. And yet we're hardwired from birth, from conception, to be all about worshiping the wrong thing. The people here in Exodus 32, they want to fashion and control an idol. And you and I, when given the opportunity, day in and day out, the question isn't whether or not we're worshiping. We're always worshiping. And you say, uh, even when I sin, I'm worshiping? Yeah. We often worship our way into sin. And if you're there this morning, you've wrongly worshipped your way into sin, there's hope. You can rightly worship your way out of it. By His grace. And through His mercy. And forgiveness. And so we're made to worship. And so the question isn't, will we worship? But what are we worshiping? And is that worthy of the cost that it's requiring? And so they're seeking to behold idols. Moses is at the top of the mountain. The contrast could not be any more different. Moses is at the top of the mountain. He has prayed, Lord, show me your glory. Like, I want to see your glory. I want to worship you. And the people are down at the mountain so enthralled with idols that they can fashion in with, them, with their hands. So just even as an, a reminder for us at the outset of this year, Covenant Life Church, seek the greater reward. Like, don't live for lesser glory. In fact, if we want to live for the right glory, the glory of God, then we have to refrain and put to death the impulse within all of our hearts to live for lesser glories. Like, do I do what honors the Lord, or do I do what makes me feel good, to make me be perceived as really, really special? No, no, we put those lesser glories away. The glory of God so emanates, and it's meant to captivate our hearts, and yet these lesser glories come. And man, they're so tempting to be fixated on this. But the problem is that when we're fixated on the lesser glory, the glory that we were built for, the glory that can sustain our souls in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of even the good days, it gives us a reason for living. And in the bad days, it gives us a reason for not giving up. This is the glory that we were built for. And yet these smaller, lesser glories will come and they'll seek to, to eclipse our view of this greater glory. And as Christians, what we do is we say, no, 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 we are going to die to want to be captivated by any lesser glory. And we're going to be disciplined. And we're going to help one another. Eyes locked on the glory that we were built for and that satisfies our soul. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are exhausted because your whole life, there is a great glory that you were built for and your whole life has been chasing this. And so, 
Moses comes down, Exodus chapter 34, two tablets in his hand. He's unaware that his, the, the, the skin of his face is radiating. It's, it's emanating. It's putting off this brilliant light because of the glory that he has beheld. And again, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what, this is what people need from you. Not to have a ghostly, radiant light coming from your face, but for it to be beyond a shadow of a doubt clear that you have spent time with your God. Like you're altogether different because you have fought against the urge by the grace that he supplies to be captivated by lesser glories. Like when you meet people like that, There's a longing, I think, within us all that just says, I want that. Like, I want to be captivated like that. And so if we believe that what we need most is to be so captivated by by the glory of God, we behold Him together as a church, then let's not neglect deep communion with the Lord in 2024. One point for the sermon. Huh. But really, one point for the sermon that I pray would serve as a prayerful aim for our church this year. And the point is this. Let's behold God's glory by looking unto Jesus. Let's behold God's glory by looking unto Jesus. The context of 2 Corinthians chapter 3 leads us to see that Paul has this Exodus account in mind as he writes 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We were created in God's image so that we might share in his life and in his loving character. We were created in God's image so that in looking to God, we would actually become like God. Not that we would become gods, but the character, the attributes, some of the shared attributes that he have, that, that we would grow in those things. And so as people think, man, God is merciful, they would think about his people. His people are merciful. Like God insists on truth. His people insist on truth. And there would be this similarity between who our God is and who his people are. And all of this falls under just the reality that it really does matter what you behold day in and day out. It's why in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22, we hear the Lord say, look to me all the ends of the earth and be saved. Like there's no other place in order uh, uh, that we can look in order to find salvation than unto God. Psalm 17, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness and I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. And so I behold, I, I, I fix my gaze on you, God. And if I'm there, like I will be satisfied with you. It's the longing of Psalm 27, verse 4, where David says, one thing that I would add, I, I just want to dwell with you so that I can meditate and look upon your beauty, O oh God. It's like one thing. David just says, give me one thing. I wonder at the outset of this year, if someone says, hey, blank, blank, uh, check for you. What's the one thing? Is it more of him? I pray. I pray that the Lord in his kindness 
would grow us to be a people who just say one thing. Like we just want more of him. Like I want to be so fixated on his glory and his beauty. And that that would just then inform everything else about who I am. And so if we want to feel the weight of what he says in 3.18, it's helpful to know how he gets there. He argues at the beginning, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, the proof of his ministry. We heard this a little bit last week as Kevin was preaching about being compelled to love. The, the, the impulse behind 2 Corinthians, this letter, is really Paul is, is having to, he's written a letter to 1 Corinthians. He writes then this severe letter that we don't have. It was a pretty harsh letter. Then he writes 2 Corinthians. And this letter to 2 Corinthians Paul is sort of pushing back on a lot of the false teachers that have come in and said, ah, listen, I, I realize Paul's got some sway over you, but you should really consider it. Paul is weak. Like Paul, is, his life is riddled with affliction. And in fact, just look around. Look at the people. You follow Paul, you get affliction. And so Paul, at the outset of this, of this chapter, just says, no, 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 listen, I don't show up with letters of commendation to make you believe that I am who, that I, who I say that I am. You want to know my proof? Paul says, my proof is you. Like, you're different than, than who you once were. And Paul understands that Christ has made him a minister of a new covenant. You have an Old Testament and a New Testament. There's in those testaments, there's an Old Covenant and a New Covenant. Paul understands that he is a minister of this new covenant. The Old Covenant, at the heart of the Old Covenant, really was what Moses comes down from the mountain holding. This law, these Ten Commandments. And Paul says, no, 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 like, I'm not a minister of the Old Covenant. Like, Moses did that. I'm a minister of a New Covenant. It's this law, not that's written on tablets of stone, it's this law that God writes on the hearts of His people. Like that, that... Not the law. There's another message. The law points us to this other message of, of grace. The old covenant, the law, was able to reveal to people that they were not good enough to be made right with God, which is why there were sacrifices. There had to be the shedding of, of innocent blood in order to have sins forgiven. And so Paul's writing to say, no, no, no. Like the old covenant, the old covenant was good enough to make you understand your guilt. But the law couldn't do anything to make you fully and finally right with God. And Paul says, how people are made fully and finally right with God, that's what I'm a minister of. It's this new covenant. This new covenant doesn't merely clear the standard doesn't merely say, well, you don't have to worry about the law. No, the new covenant is based on the good news that Jesus has done what we could not do. Like he has upheld the law at every turn. And he has accomplished forgiveness of sin so that we can be restored to a right relationship with the God to whom we were created for, the God to whom we are accountable to. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, Paul says that if Moses' face was radiant with the glory based on the old covenant 
and God's people couldn't even look upon his face because, because of the glory, how much more, how much more is the glory of the new covenant? It's really an argument that Paul makes all throughout his writings. He, he says, if the lesser was this, how much more the greater? Paul's convinced that all who come to faith in Christ in the new covenant will have a superior, unfading glory that's meant to captivate their gaze. Man, this is why if you are here this morning and your life really feels like you are on a treadmill of just trying to do the law, like just try, I, I just, I got to keep doing and maybe one day I will do enough. Like the Bible frees you from that tiresome treadmill. Like you're freed from having to work yourself in a frenzy, thinking that one day you will be able to please God with what you can do. Even if starting today you were to live perfectly for the rest of your life, that still doesn't undo all of the imperfections that are on your record up until now. So you not only need the righteousness of one who has never broken God's law, you also need the forgiveness of one who's able then to, to take your place and say, no, no, the punishment that you deserve is, is what I will take on me. And so not only do you get a righteousness in Christ that you could have never earned, but you get a forgiveness that you are not worthy of. Like This is the beauty of the Christian faith. Paul says, and this is what I have been entrusted with. And if there was glory in the Old Testament that just made clear that we were all guilty, there is a surpassing glory in the New Testament that not just declares that you're guilty, but also declares you can be made right because of Jesus. The ministry of the law, don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this. That, that looked glorious. And it was glorious. There was a glory to that because it was from God. We knew God better because we had his law. But that ministry does not have the same glory as the ministry of what Christ has done. Christ's work has ushered in a better ministry, a better covenant, a surpassing glory. Which means if you're a Christian and you go back sort of, in your sanctified imagination, you take you, transport you back to the bottom of the mountain in Exodus chapter 32 or 34 when Moses comes down. And he's radiating. I think there's something within us that says, man, if I had that glory, like my life would be so much, uh, my faith would be strengthened, my life would be different. And Moses coming down off that mountain again in this make-believe scenario, would look at you and say, no, 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 no. I would give this glory for that glory any day. Paul's showing the contrast between those who are living by the law, thinking that they can be made right with God by what they do, and those who live in light of the gospel, knowing that they can't do enough but they turn from all of their sin and they trust in the work of Jesus as being sufficient to be made right with God for them on their behalf. 
What you get with Moses and what you get with Jesus are different. And he even says in verse 16, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And so it's as, if, it, it's as if we are hardwired as we are conceived and then born. We have this hardwiring of being a people that are not looking unto the Lord. And yet Paul says, but the moment in which someone turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The, the greater glory that we couldn't see, we're able to see. And church, this is the flavor of our life in Christ. Believers who turn to Jesus, who then turn and encourage other people to turn to Jesus and who walk outside of the doors of the gathering and the buildings where they meet and they encourage people that, that are hostile to Jesus or have no interest in Jesus and they plead with him, turn to Jesus. Like This is what, this is, this is who we are. This is what we are to give ourselves to. Turning to Jesus, the one who, who the fullness of God is made, uh, is made clear to us. Exact representation of his glory, the scriptures will say. Like we are just gazing at Christ and encouraging others within the church to do the same. And then together going outside and saying, if you have not yet had your heart captivated by the most beautiful and the most glorious thing, let me just tell you about him. Like what if... What if the members of this church said, this is the year that we do this with reckless abandonment? Like we're willing to take risk for the sake of the gospel because we believe that his glory is greater and it's worth it. That it's sufficient. And if we're going to be a church that says, yes, we're going to do that, then it's going to be made up of every member saying, yes, I'm going to do that. And it's also going to be made up of members who realize Yet, left to myself, I can't do that. I need others. And others need me. Why does the gospel have a kind of power that the law doesn't have? Well, Moses sees the goodness of God. He sees that God is beautiful and incredible and holy. He sees his commitment to his people. But again, what they didn't see in the law was the very face of God. They saw the character of God. If you look even in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. And so if you are not a Christian, this is what's happening to you right now. The God of this world is blinding your mind so that you would not behold the greater glory that's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then verse 6, Paul just says, For it is God who said, Let light shall shine out of darkness. The God who said that is the one who has shown in our hearts this light to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Paul talks about this ministry that he has. He talks about this veiling that happens. Moses hears in Exodus 32 through 34, You cannot see my face. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says, If you are in Christ, you have seen the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In the law, Israel sees the sacrifices. We know the law and we see the cross. God's gracious provision for the law that we can't keep. 
Moses says, show me your glory, and we have beheld the radiance of his glory. Christ is the glory of God. And all throughout scriptures, Christ will say, and especially in the gospel accounts, Christ will say, as I'm thinking about my glory, the hour of my glory has not yet come. And so there is a culminating moment in the life of Jesus where Jesus even says himself, my glory is shown is shown." 100-fold in this moment. And if we're reading the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21, Israel sins. God sends snakes in judgment. So God, God's people are sinning. God in judgment, righteous wrath and hatred of everything that's against his good and perfect will. God sends judgment, and the form of judgments are snakes. And snakes show up on the scenes and they begin to bite people and people begin to die everywhere. And so people come to Moses and they say, listen, we've sinned. Would you just pray that the Lord would take the serpents away? So Moses prays, God, would you just take the snakes away so people will stop dying? And the Lord says to Moses, no, I want you to make a fiery serpent and I want you to set it on a pole. And anyone who's bitten by a snake, I want them to look unto that fiery serpent. And if they look unto the fiery serpent, they will live. Well, then we read John chapter 3, verse 13. Interpreting that passage, John 3, 13 says, All who believe in the Son of Man who is lifted up will have eternal life. And so that's good news for us. Just as there was a time where God's people, because of their sin, were enduring his judgment. And God said, no, 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 listen, fiery snake, put it on a pole, raise the pole up, and as people are bitten and are struggling with their sin and infected by their sin, look up to the serpent and they will live. We too, infected with sin. No escape from his judgment against sin. God has made a way as the beaten and bloodied body of Jesus writhes in pain on the cross, accomplishing salvation. When he's lifted up on the cross and he's writhing in pain, I can't, I can't help but think there wasn't something in someone's mind who knew the story of, wait, look, look at the serpent that would have been dangling. Look, look to the serpent and be saved and live. Jesus lifted up on the cross and in the moment of his crucifixion, we see the blazing glory of God in the face of Jesus in ways that we could never have dreamed, dreamt of. At the brilliance of color that just begins to pop out from this good news in this moment. And it's that side. It's when the Lord graciously gives you eyes to see what is happening on the cross. Not just, as Abigail said earlier in her testament, not just facts to know. Like eyes to see it. Like I believe. I believe that there's a reason that Jesus is suspended between heaven and earth. Like, I believe that if I look unto that work, I too shall live. And it's that sight that tears the veil away and it scatters the darkness away. 
And so coming to Life Church, whatever we do this year, let's live to point people to that glory. The glory of God that's seen in the face of Jesus Christ. And if we peer into the gospel accounts, we hear Jesus talk about the hour of his glory. Like it is most concentrated as he's on the cross, accomplishing, not making something possible. He's accomplishing salvation for his people. I, I, I get to this point in the sermon, and I just want to say, this is why Jesus is altogether glorious. Like, I don't even know what else to say to, to make him seem more glorious. Like, there's nothing else he could do I pray that even in hearing that, you would see Jesus as the most beautiful and the most satisfying. And so what is it? What is it that's rivaling the glory of God and the face of Jesus in your life this year? Like what's keeping you from going, yeah, I'm not sure that's the most glorious thing I can give my life gazing at and being consumed with. What are you trusting in to deliver what only God can deliver? And if you're here this morning and the veil still lies over your heart, you, your eyes, the eyes of your heart cannot behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. I pray that in hearing this message, the veil would be lifted. I pray that it would even create a longing in your heart to want the veil gone where you would be able to behold something as glorious as this. And if you find yourself beginning to behold it, beginning to be convinced that there's nothing more glorious than what God has done in and through the work of Jesus the Christ, like turn from everything else that's captivating your attention. Not just turn like I'm tired of it, like confess that it leads to a dead end eternity. And believe, believe that what Christ has done is really the only hope that you have. Like, believe that. This God sending his son who dies to embrace you, to make you what you cannot ever be apart from him. God loves to display his glory in forgiving great sinners. And we see this glory in the cross. We see this glory, even as the testimony said earlier. It doesn't end with him dead in the grave like every other world religion leader. No, he is risen from the dead, and he is alive in heaven, and he will return. It could be even before you make it home today. And so turn from your sin and trust in the work of Christ alone as your only hope to ever be made right with God. And talk to someone about that. And when this happens, like when that type of prizing Jesus above everything else, not just knowing certain facts about him, not just being pretty uninterested about those facts, but it's literally leveraging your life to say he's most worthy 
Like that's the proof that people belong to him. When that happens, verse 17 says that there is now a freedom because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And some of, some of you, some of us this morning are in bondage. We're going, why in the world? Why in the world do I feel enslaved to X? And some of you, it's because you've not tasted freedom that only comes by turning from sin and trusting in Christ alone. And for others, it's this. It's, it's I, I belong to him, but I still feel entrapped at times. That's because the, what has captivated our attention is the lesser glories. Which means you need one another. We need one another in order to be fixated on the greater glory. There are so many things in the Christian life that can be faked. Reading our Bibles, praying, attending church, religious talk. But what cannot be faked is a longing for, the, a longing for Christ in the soul of his child where we would say Christ is regarded, is regarded as the highest. Like I regard him more precious than everything else. We can't fake that. And even the word there in verse 18, with unveiled face, we're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That idea of beholding, it, it's, not a, it's not a quick just sort of glance. No, it is a, an intentional, slow, like I am going to study. Like I'm going to take my time. I want to behold. And it's as we behold his glory, we are being transformed to be more and more like him, one degree of glory to another. Transformed, it's, it's a passive verb, meaning we don't transform ourselves, but as we look intently upon his glory, we are being changed. Like I, so, I, I so long for the fruitfulness and the effect of my preaching. When I preach a sermon, I, I so long just... Uh, open confession, I, I long that everyone will walk away and go, that was the best sermon I've ever heard. I am forever changed. And literally to this date, I don't know, I, that has, no one has ever said that to me. And yet this is what I do know. Like the testimony you heard today. I do know that every time this word goes forth, we are shaped one blow at a time. Which is why we need one another. It's why this word is taking effect. Jen Wilkins said, we cannot imitate a Christ whose features and habits we have never learned. Like Christ must fill our gaze. Individually, and as a church family, I think John Piper says it well. He says, ultimately, the aim of God's work and salvation is not that through Christ we may have salvation, but that through salvation we may have Christ. Because Christ, not salvation, is the all-satisfying treasure of the soul. Like, I pray, Lord, please, 
make this true for me this year. And Lord, make this true for us this year. Okay, so I'm convinced. I'm convinced maybe there is a greater glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Like, how do I behold it? Two very ordinary means that I think will serve us well in 2024. Number one, consistently read and meditate upon God's Word. The Spirit who inspired those words now indwells His people to testify through that Word about God's glory. Remember Exodus. The people, the people wanted, they wanted to see and know that God was glorious on the other side of their sin. And do you remember how they were convinced? Not merely by the smoke and the thunder and the lightning. They were convinced by what they heard. They saw the glory of God by what they heard from God. And so don't neglect regular, consistent intake of God's word. Jesus says, all the scriptures testify to me. John chapter 5, verse 39. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, we are to look not at the things that are seen, but unseen. Through the word of God, we are given eyes to see invisible things. And so commit yourself to being a Christian, a church member, who is regularly meeting with God in and through his word. Secondly, join and actively participate in the life of a local church. A Christ-treasuring church is God's ordinary and designed means of allowing his people to enjoy Christ's infinite worth. Do you believe that? When left to ourselves, we tend to do what God's people did at the bottom of the mountain. We tend to mold God into an idol of our mind. Like we can, it is a very real danger that we love the wrong Jesus. Crafting a different Jesus in our minds is precisely what Jesus warns about in Matthew chapter 24. But the true Jesus, he has wed himself to his church, Ephesians chapter 5 says. And so beholding Jesus is a community project. And everyone who's on the road to glory will be compelled by the Christ of that church to help others along the way. And so if you're not a member of a local church, I would just tell you, begin to remedy that this year. And even as you're thinking, what is it that I want to look for in a local church? Look for a church that prizes the glory of God in the face of Jesus over everything else. And every ministry is, is, finds its origin from that. And every prayerful ambition and aim and future planning can be tethered directly to that. We're not just looking for good things that we find on websites. We're looking for real things that are running its course through the people of the church. 
And if you've been a part of a Christ-treasuring church for any length of time, you've seen Christ. You've seen him as the word is proclaimed from the pages of Scripture. You've seen him when a suffering saint testifies to Christ's sufficiency. Again, I'm just thinking about the words of my friend Jordan Thomas. Jesus shines through a persecuted sister when she speaks about Christ's worth, or when a grieving spouse sings of Christ's love, or when the repentant enter the waters of baptism or partake of the Lord's Supper. In those moments, the church is drawn near to the glory of God. And so Covenant Life Church, let's let nothing Isaac Ambrose, in his work, Looking Unto Jesus, says, There is nothing so pleasing and comfortable, so animating and enlivening as Christ. Christ is the sum and the center of all revealed truths. Christ is the whole of man's happiness. He's the sun that enlightens him, the physician that heals him, the wall of fire that defends him, the friend that comforts him, the pearl that enriches him, the ark that shelters him, and the rock that sustains him under the heaviest pressures. He's the ladder between earth and heaven, the mediator between God and man. He is the mystery which the angels desire to to look into. This is the Christ whose glory you have seen. Ignatius says, apart from Christ, let nothing dazzle you. Robert Murray McShane, writing to a friend, says, learn much of the Lord Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. He's altogether lovely, such infinite majesty, and yet such meekness and grace. Live much for the smiles of God. Bask in his beams. Feel the all-seeing eye settled on you in love and rest in his almighty arms. Let your soul be filled with a heart-ravishing sense of the sweetness and the excellency of Christ and all that is him. John Calvin says, we are not supposed to seek in Christ something other than Christ himself. Let's make 2024 the year that this church, every member, individually, collectively, we say we're going to seek nothing, nothing more fervently, nothing more consistently, nothing more regularly, nothing more prayerfully than Christ himself because we're convinced that he alone satisfies unlike anything else. Amen?